Good afternoon, Jack. Good afternoon, Dennis. Thanks for doing a great job and appreciate you. And now I'm here to ruin all of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're, with, our, with our dreadful little show. Uh, but anyway, good afternoon. Welcome to our dreadful little show. Welcome to three hours of right-wing hate fest. That's what we're here for. You know me. You know me. That's what I'm, what I'm all about. Uh, after all, I am part of the most extreme political organization that's ever existed. And you are too, possibly. I'm going to let you in on it. You may not have known it until now. But you may be part of the most extreme political organization that's ever existed in America. If you are part of what the president calls the MAGA crowd. Now remember, Joe Biden isn't exactly sure what Let's Go Brandon means. He, he's, he, he was in an interview, he was, he thinks Brandon's a, a guy people are rooting for. So, when he says MAGA, I'm not sure he knows, but somebody has told him that that's the other side. That's the, Those are his opponents, uh, the people that voted for and still support former President Donald Trump. They were asking him today, uh, he, he came out to do an announcement about the economy and uh, what have you, and they were asking him about the uh, leak of the Supreme Court draft opinion that we talked about uh, yesterday. And he said and 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 I want you to know what a lie this is. Okay. He said as many Democrats are saying today and many in the media are saying and I believe they know this is a lie that the the Alito opinion which is a first draft opinion anyway but even if it was to be the final opinion is about more than abortion that the ruling will affect all these other things all these other areas of American life. And that is a lie because if you read the Alito opinion, he actually says verbatim, as if he knew this would be a strategy, nothing in this opinion, the one that was leaked, is to be construed as concerning any other rights or any other case. This is only about the facts of this abortion clinic case out of Mississippi. It's not about whether or not gay children can be in classrooms with straight children. It's not about using contraceptives in the bedroom. It's not about gay marriage. When the president talks this way, we know the they he always refers to is whispering lies in his ears. He said, what happens if states change the law saying that children who are LGBT can't be in classrooms with other children? Is that legit in any way under this decision? He by now has had time to read the decision. He knows it's not. Why is he asking that question? Well, he's throwing that out there for people that haven't read it. And for Joe Biden to call you and me the most extreme political organization that's ever existed, from the man that spent most of his political career in the party of the Ku Klux Klan, the man who eulogized a Klansman, the man who told an audience of African-American voters in 2012 when he and President Obama were running for re-election that Mitt Romney was going to put them back in chains the man who said when he went down to Georgia 
Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? For him to accuse other people of being the most extreme political organization is rich. Nobody knows more about extremity these days than Joe Biden and the Democrats. The pot is calling the kettle black. They know what they're talking about. The president was asked about the uh, leaked Supreme Court opinion, and he referred to it as aborting a child. The idea, this is a quote, the idea that we're going to make a judgment that is going to say that no one can make a judgment to choose to abort a child based on a decision by the Supreme Court, I think that goes way overboard. He said he called it abort a child. What kind of messaging is that? Is that what they've is that what they've agreed to? He didn't say terminate a pregnancy, he didn't call it women's reproductive health. Those are the new Orwellian euphemisms. He just called it abort a child. Cuz Joe Biden knows that's what it's what it is. And um I want to talk about that a little bit today. I I find him a puzzling figure because In the lives of most people I've known, as they get older, their not only political but moral views tend to trend toward the more traditional. What's the old saying, you know, there's something wrong with you if you're not a liberal when you're 20 and not a conservative when you're 60 or something like that. I probably botched it, but you know what I mean. Joe Biden is one of those rarest of rare people who's gone the opposite way. And we'll explain that as we go along here today. It's got to be tough for the Democrats, though. Um, just the other day, they were cheering on men beating women in women's sports. And now, all of a sudden, they have to pretend they care about women. What a, what a neck-twisting <laughs> transition that has been. Well, you probably have heard the story about Dave Chappelle. Comedian Dave Chappelle was performing at the Hollywood Bowl. And uh, a man ran up on the stage, armed with a knife, and tackled him. And the LAPD says that he's a 23-year-old man, uh, that he's being held on $30,000 bail. Dave Chappelle was not injured, and uh, the show eventually went on. There were a number of other comedians and musicians on the bill, and they all carried on and continued the show. Chris Rock was there. He asked the audience if the attacker was Will Smith. It's a great line. But this is happening now. Dave Chappelle was attacked. Uh, He was attacked because he says what he thinks. He was attacked because he doesn't hold back. He doesn't sand off the rough edges. He doesn't walk the walk that so many entertainers and so many corporations in this country have done to try to please the woke crowd. You know, there's a group of people in our country now who for years have been telling us that words kill and words hurt and words are violence. But some of those same people then turn around and burn down stores and loot them and say that's not violence. So they want to lecture us about the power of words, but they twist 
and turn and hollow out the meaning of words. We were told recently by a very educated woman on national television that she couldn't define a woman. And her defenders then said there's no definition for a woman. But words matter. And Dave Chappelle's not very much different from any comedian. When you go to a comedy club, you expect somebody to be racy, saucy, sassy, step up to the line, step over the line. That's always been the case with comedy. And now it's okay to just go hit them. And imagine if this just spilled over into our everyday lives. You, you do something for a living. I do something for a living. Not everybody likes what you do or what you serve or the product you provide. Not everybody likes what I do. Seems to be one or two that don't like it. I know of. Can they just slap us? If you hear something you don't like and you just go over and knock the person down? And we have other versions of it, too, right? We have doxing and canceling and outing. I'm glad Dave Chappelle is okay, and I'm glad that they got the guy. But it's not good for society that this is happening. And not just the part about comedy and we're not able to laugh at things anymore, but the people that told us in 2020 that we had to vote for their candidate and their party in order to restore norms, in order to restore decency, in order to restore the soul of America. This is what it looks like. How do you like the soul of America these days? How's it look to you? Joe Biden, nearly 50 years in public life, which is why he was qualified to be president. I mean, he's never done anything else but be a politician. So that was, the, that was it. That was the, that was the resume. And in that time, he has traveled a very interesting path on the abortion issue. When he was a freshman senator, he voted for the first time when it was first proposed, the Hyde Amendment, which prevents federal money from being spent on abortions. He voted against Medicaid funding abortions, even for rape and incest cases. Again, this is when he started out as a senator in the 1970s. That vote was 76. In 1981, Joe Biden wrote the amendment to the Foreign Assistance Act that banned foreign aid, the money we give other countries, from being used on abortion. They call it the Biden Amendment. It's still in the law. It has his name on it. It's a powerful anti-abortion law. He voted for an amendment which prohibits the use of federal funds to lobby for the cause of abortion. That's been modified, but he was for it when it came up before the Senate in 1981. Also in that year, he supported Jesse Helms, the conservative Republican from North Carolina, who wanted to prohibit the use of federal funds for abortion research and training. Ronald Reagan did not support that, but Joe Biden did. Biden repeatedly voted against efforts to change something called the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program from paying for abortions for government workers. And I could go on. There were other votes on the Hyde Amendment. There were other votes on the so-called Biden Amendment. He voted the same way. 
He once told a constituent in the 90s, I have voted against abortion more than any other senator. And he counted over 50 times, or his staff did, in this letter to a constituent. He voted for the partial birth abortion ban. During the Clinton administration, President Clinton vetoed it, but Democrat Senator Joe Biden voted for it. And again and again, he opposed partial birth abortions. In fact, right before he was chosen to be Barack Obama's running mate, Biden wrote in a book about his life, I've been consistent on abortion for more than 30 years. Now, while he was vice president, he didn't have to say very much about abortion, and he didn't. When he decided to start running for president again, leading up to the 2020 election, he was asked about the Hyde Amendment. He said he was still a supporter of it. But he started taking heat for saying that. The other candidates, remember there was a big field of Democrats, 2019, 2020, they started calling him out on that. So Joe Biden, grandfather, septuagenarian, avowed Catholic, started changing. And I don't mean evolving. I mean, he took a 180. He spun the car. There's no moderation. Hyde Amendment, never heard of it. Biden Amendment, that must have been some other Biden, not me. And now he's the pro-abortion crowd's man. And this is a big reason why they got behind him. Remember in 2020, all of a sudden, all those other people dropped out? Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren. All of a sudden, everybody was like, ah, you know what, we're just going to let Biden have it. He had reassured or assured the abortion lobby that he would give them everything they wanted. Now, it's one thing to be a thoughtful person. It's one thing to change your mind. It's one thing to evolve your thinking or have life experiences that would change your thinking. I mean, that's, that's the human condition. How do you explain a man at his stage of his life, with his life experiences, and I say this respectfully, He's had children. He's lost children. He's watched his grandchildren come into the world. He's nearing the winter of his years, or he's in the winter of his years. Who becomes, who, who goes from being virulently, consistently anti-abortion to being virulently pro-abortion and speaks of it yesterday as aborting a child? That's nothing but politics. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me, tell me how I've got that wrong. What other explanation is there for that? I want to be president. I want to stay president. These people that keep telling me what to do and where to stand and when I can stop talking and when I can start talking, they've told me I need to do this, so I'm, I'm going to do it. I can't say it very convincingly, but I'll say it. I'll stammer it out. I'll give them what they want. He's promising to do everything in his power, and I believe him on this one. 210-599-5555. Now, in the wake of this Roe v. Wade 
overturning it, Supreme Court leak story. A survey was done about whether people believe that the companies they patronize, the brands they buy, the products they like, do you want the companies and brands and products that you like to stake out positions on political and social issues? Do you want your, you know, the company that makes your favorite coffee or spaghetti or that built your car or the airline you fly, do you want them to say, yeah, we're, we're in favor of Roe v. Wade. We're against the Supreme Court overturning it. Or do you want them to take positions on other issues? Do you want your favorite brands and products to let you know where they stand politically? This survey says that voters want that. You want that. You want companies to take political and social positions. Is that true or is that false? 210-599-5555. Is it true or false that you want the brands and the products you use to speak out on political issues? And you know how I feel about surveys and polls. I mean, they can be manipulated. The one we do is obviously just for entertainment purposes. We don't, we don't present it as evidence of, of anything. It's just, just to guide the conversation on our show. Um, it, I'd be the first to tell you it's not scientific or anything like that. So I'm not sure I trust this uh, poll that was done by Morning Consult and Politico. It says that uh, 51% of Americans want brands to speak out, take a position. I have to tell you, I, um, I find that a little hard to believe. And, and I'll just tell you my reason for it, but I want to hear yours. My reason for it is that it's exhausting and pointless have everything everything be polemical there is just no value in it sometimes it's just a candy bar sometimes it's just a soft drink sometimes it's just a family vacation not everything has to be about the current political hot button issue or debate the people who want it to be i i have to say this is my opinion the people who want everything to be about politics and politics to be in everything, I think, have very empty lives. Politics isn't just a means to an end for them. It's their faith. It's their religion. It's their hobby. It's They're the people that, you know, buttonhole you at family gatherings and demand to know how you voted, which is as obnoxious as asking you how much you make for a living or something. When, how many times did you have sex with your wife or husband last month? You wouldn't answer those questions, but you're supposed to blurt out all your political positions to these people that don't have a life. And I I acknowledge there are people who believe politics is everything, but I don't think half of us are. I don't think it's even close, but you're going to prove me right or wrong on that in how you answer this. So is it true for you or is it false for you that you want the brands and the products you use to let you know where they are on abortion, where they are in critical race theory, where they are on this, where they are on that. Are they, are, you know, are they blue or red? Is that important to you? A survey says that um, people want their favorite brands and products and companies to stake out political positions. Like on the, uh, the question of repealing Roe v. Wade, you don't want to buy, apparently, this is what they're saying, you, you, you don't want to buy a sofa from that furniture store. 
you don't want to buy a pizza. You don't want to buy a car unless you know that company's position on political and social issues. Well, that sounds like a lot of bull to me. I don't know. And, and you know me. I'm a pretty opinionated person. I'm, I'm political. I'm opinionated. I have them. I traffic in them. But no. I want products that are good, that I like. <laughs> I want people who are good at what they do. I don't really care how they vote. I don't need to know. I don't need them to tell me. I, I r- would rather they didn't. Because then I have to pretend to be interested, and I'm not. Is that a terrible thing? I Make the pizza, sell me the chair. I, I don't need to know. How do you feel about that? 210-599-5555. James is on 550 and one KTSA. James, good afternoon. Hi, thanks for letting me jump in here. I, I do agree with you. I used to I used to buy butter because it was the, the most beautiful label. It had the Indian girl on the front, then they took it off. So I changed brands, and now I buy Challenge Butter. My entire life I used um, uh, Aunt Jemima dressing as a child. I mean, it was always, it was like, it was a no-brainer. You always bought it. And then they decided to push on me that, for whatever reason, I bought this for the, I don't know, I don't understand why they, they did that. So now I buy Log Cabin. So, it's they they lost me when they when they wanted to tell me what they mm-hmm. thought. I, I, mm-hmm. I'm with you on this. It's like I just want butter. I <laughs> your politics. I just want butter. That sounds like a T-shirt. I mean, what are doing? I mean, that's a T-shirt. I just want butter. I mean, that's it. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I, I, I don't understand. Yeah. And, and when they look look after the NBA, they lost me. I was I used to be yeah. mildly interested, but then yeah. they told me that. I was, I don't know, they, they, they tell you what they think you believe, and you're like, I don't even know you. How could you possibly know what I believe? Right. They lost me. I, I mean, it's right. just, I mean, it, hope it doesn't happen to college sports, because that, that's my last, my last, my I'm last. I'm with you there. Play. Yeah, no kidding. I'm with you on that, too. I hope it doesn't either. James, thank you. So James says, look, I just want the product. I, I pick it because I like it. I don't have any interest in, I'm not going to pretend to be interested in the politics. Uh, they're laboring, a lot of these companies are laboring under the idea that they've got to be out there on Roe v. Wade. You, you know, we, we can't, we can't put you on the airplane till we let you know how, how we feel about Roe v. Wade. I, I don't, I don't feel that way. I don't care. I know some people are going to say, well, don't you want to steer your dollars toward companies that share your, you know what? No, I don't. I mean, if I can, if, if it's easy to do that, yeah, I'll do it. But no, as a general rule, when I'm buying things and buying services, I'm just trying to get the best value and the best product or the best experience or the best butter or, you know, the best uh, pancake syrup. That's, uh, you know, that's me. I'll, 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 I'll do my politicking on my time and where I want to do it. And I'm not doing it in the aisle of the supermarket. You know how long it would take to buy groceries? <laughs> if you had to litmus test everything you were going to take off the shelf? Oh, wait a minute. I know I need cornflakes, but hold on. Let me check and see what Kellogg is saying today about uh, about Roe v. Wade. You'll be at the you'll be at the HEB all day, sir. We're closing. I'm I'm sorry. I haven't finished picking out my politically um, agreeable uh, cereal. Uh, Tom is at two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five on KTSA. Tom, good afternoon. Hello, Jack. Listen, I, I, you know, as a as a businessman, this is this is completely nuts. 
right? I don't go around with my customers sharing my political beliefs or sharing how I voted. I, they don't care. I don't care, you know. But once it comes into the conversation, then it's there, you know. So I have my favorite products, you know. I haven't bought bought Coke in about a year because, uh, you know, they pissed me off. <laughs> Sorry. And uh, so I buy H-E-B Cola. You know, I, I haven't bought Levi's jeans in 30 years. I love my 501s, mm-hmm. but I won't buy them anymore. But aren't you, but wait a minute, Tom, aren't you saying that you 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 started out saying you don't care, but now you're saying you do care. You're saying you've you've well, you've disavowed I, okay, brands you like because of their politics. So you do care. Okay, I don't share my politics with my customers. Right. And so what 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 I'm saying is, if they come out with some nutty um, political views, or uh, start preaching to me about things that I don't think are important, then I leave them alone. But once so you're saying maybe, that, let me see if I understand you, and, and correct me if I don't have it right. Are you saying, if I don't know the politics of the brand, and I like the brand, I just buy it. But if they tell me exactly. their politics, and I think their politics are wrong, then even though I like the product, I'm not going to buy it. You know what? Because they're trying to force something on me. That's okay. the reason. Now, if they if they aren't trying to force it on you, but you know that they feel that way because maybe it's on their Twitter feed or something, is that okay? I mean, do you need to not know anything about their politics, or how does it work? Well, I don't. I don't look at their. I don't. I don't do Twitter. I mean, it's junk. But um, I, if they if they come out and publicly say that I'm wrong about what I feel because mm-hmm. they're right about what mm-hmm. they feel. I mean, like, mm-hmm. I, ever since I was four years old, I've loved Tootsie Roll Pops. Okay? Yeah. So if they came out and said that, you know, they're all woke and that uh, they're, they're, they're taking this hard political yeah. stance, you know, I... I, I I'd buy okay. something else. I'd go. I'd go with dumbs. Okay. <laughs> hey, next Halloween, next Halloween, I'm going to give you all my tootsie rolls because I can't because I can't stand them. So, Tom, you're yeah. getting all my tootsie rolls next next Halloween. Thank you, Tom. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. So, there's degrees of this, I think, right? Like Tom is saying, just if if it's like don't ask, don't tell with Tom, right? Like if I don't know, then I just buy stuff I like. If they go to the trouble of exhibiting it then i might not buy their product anymore and i'm in a different place on that spectrum where you know unless they are completely just obnoxious about it um i am still buying coke I, it's coke zero or diet coke but um i'm not that that to me is not a distinction worth making i'm not interested in making that i'm not telling you what to do by the way i'm not i'm not endorsing coke i'm not saying you should do what i do we're just we're just talking about what each of us does. We need to be able to do that, right, without beating each other over the head. You're wrong. You're not doing it right. Now, this isn't about that. There's no right answer to this question. I'm just trying to find out if it's in fact true that most people, because this is the assertion that the morning consult made, most people want companies, want brands, want 
products they already like and use. They want to know that they're aligned with them politically. I don't care. And, you know, maybe one of the reasons I don't care is that, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I, I've, I've spent most of my life living in places, well, not most of my life, maybe half my life, spent half my life living in places where I was a political minority, where I was living in, uh, I was living in a political exile. You know what it's like to be in Massachusetts and have these politics? Or New York? So I got to the point where, uh, you know, if, if you, if, if I was waiting for somebody to cook a meal with my political views, I was starved to death. So I just didn't bother. I don't care. And um, I, I really, I think, frankly, most people would, would like to be left alone in the pickle aisle or when they're buying a car or when they're, you know what I mean? I don't think, they, I don't think that's where they want to handle Roe v. Wade or handle, uh, you know, men and women's sports. Maybe I'm wrong. You tell me. Is it important to you? Is it true or false that you need your companies to tell you where they stand? Uh, 210-599-5555. The political messaging and positioning on this Supreme Court leak is breathtaking. And now that we're into another day of it, it, it's pretty clear it was not unexpected or surprising to the Democrats. They knew it was coming. They prepared a response. They have ginned up. Uh, the rhetoric, and they have latched on. They're, they're like drowning people in the water, and somebody has thrown them a life preserver. This leaked opinion is a life preserver, and they've grabbed on because they have nothing else going for them in the midterms. They look like their goose is cooked on every other major issue, the pocketbook issues, the the, the kitchen table issues, the values issues. They've staked out such extreme, um, you know, acrobatic stances on things like gender and schooling and race and religion in America that, needless to say, they need something. And, and this is, they think this is it. They think that uh, defending women, they think that women will forget that five minutes ago this was the party that couldn't define them and wouldn't defend them when it came to girls' and women's sports. But now defending women is the thing. I want you to hear, because it's so over the top, it really, I find it comical. You may find it nauseating or I don't know. Uh, I want you to hear uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. She is in the crowd, the, the, the mob in front of the Supreme Court, and she's doing like a theater in the round uh, performance. And she, you know her, she's always like Gumby, you know, the body's swaying back and forth, the fists and legs are, are flailing like they're, like, you know, like, like they're not connected by tendons, they're connected by strings, you know. And, and here she is, she's, she's fighting for you. Listen to this. We are gonna fight Those who have been raped, 
to work three jobs to be able to support the children they have. Well, I am here because I am angry. I am and angry. I am here I because am angry. the United States Congress she, can change She is angry. Can you tell? Can you tell she's angry? Well, these people are always angry. They were angry at something else five minutes before the Supreme Court thing leaked. Or was or was leaked. They're always angry. Everything's an outrage. Everything is the end of the world. Everything is the worst thing ever. It's an outrage. I'm angry. It must be exhausting. She must fall into bed exhausted every night. They're always angry. The left is always outraged. America is always a disappointment to them. Every institution, nothing is good enough. Nothing measures up to today's Democrats. Everything has let them down. Except abortion doctors. They rock. But, I mean, I, I have to laugh. This is not about me. Yeah, well, I, no, it's not about you. I think your reproductive years are behind you. But it's not even, this is so transparently what they hope will bring out their voters. Now, they may be right, I don't know. So it's not that they think if you were planning on voting for a Republican candidate, you'll switch over to them. It's that they hope their voters, who are dispirited, dismayed, discouraged, who are watching Biden going, what did we do here? We'll find a rallying moment. And maybe it will be and maybe it won't be. And the, 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 the court of public opinion seems to be still out on this. It would be quite a commentary, wouldn't it, if a Supreme Court ruling on abortion was the game changer for the Democratic Party. I mean, if that was the case, if if Liz Warren got her dream come true, what would that say about the Democratic Party? What would that make their, I guess their their trademark or their image? What would it, what would it be? Is this really the hill you want to die on? As my mom used to say, are they are they understanding women? And I I have to ask that question, not being one and not identifying as one. To hear Democrats talk, this is the most, if you're a woman, this is the most important thing, that you can get an abortion. You care about it even if you're not in a position to need one, or you're beyond the age of becoming pregnant, or you're not sexually active. This is the most important thing. Nothing's more important until the next thing they're angry about, which I'm sure will come along at any minute. They're always angry. I uh, I was listening to the guys on uh, San Antonio Sports Star talk about this. Uh, people are freaking out that the Spurs are going to leave because they, they are going to leave for a few games. They apparently want to play, correct me if I have this wrong, I think they want to play a couple of games at the Alamo Dome, which is still here. They want to play a couple of games in Austin, and then they might play like a game or two outside the country. Is that about the size of it? Yeah, so it's it's two games at the Moody Center, the new arena that they built at UT. In Austin. Uh, yep. okay. And then a game at the Alamo Dome for this upcoming season. And okay. then a game probably in Mexico City. And yeah. then the Spurs wanted to do, for a second year, two games in Mexico, two games in Austin. Yeah. I don't think, that's, uh, I don't think that means they're leaving. 
No, and it was interesting because uh, I yeah again I was listening to down the hall as well, and um, they had Justin Rodriguez on the county commissioner, and he made a good point when he was talking to the Spurs that um, I think the idea is that the Austin games would be played during the rodeo road trip, which would make mm-hmm. sense if you're away from mm-hmm. San Antonio for yeah. a number of weeks. Why not play a game in Austin and, and still have that home game? A lot easier playing them in Austin than playing them in, you know, L.A. or Memphis yeah. or Boston. Yeah, I I, um, I thought it was funny, uh, the, all the different reactions. And then some people are are saying, oh, no, 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 that's not going to, that's not, you know, that's not going to happen. Um, so let's talk about that for a minute. Um, you know, I, I can remember, maybe you can too, it was around 95, I think, that the Spurs needed a new arena and there was the fight over how it would get paid for and would taxes, uh, taxpayers, uh, build it. And it, remember they were going to build it, um, over at the, uh, Northeast Quarry over where I think, I think they were looking at what is now Heroes Stadium or a site near there. And, um, and then that didn't happen. And then there was, there was always every time some other city wanted an NBA expansion franchise, there was always the flirtation, right? With the Spurs and, then when the Spurs were up for sale, and 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 I I gotta tell you, I mean, never say never. I mean, it's it's not like any, it's not like anybody can tell you they will never leave San Antonio, but all of these teams in all of the major sports are trying to build brands now. Branding is the word, and so you build your brand by playing NFL games in London or Munich or playing you know Major League Baseball games in in Mexico or or wherever they're going to play them. I think there's I think there's some talk that uh the Tampa Rays may play some games in Canada uh because there's only that Canada used to have two major league teams and it's down to one. But I, I you know I I just don't this is not something I would worry about. I, and and maybe you're not worried, maybe you're saying, "Well, Jack, I don't even follow the Spurs. I don't even care." But if you are a Spurs fan, if you are a Spurs fan, so don't you don't have to answer this if you're not. If you're a Spurs fan, are, are you worried about this? I wouldn't worry about it. I, I, maybe I'm missing something, but it doesn't sound like anything you should worry about. I, I think every team does it, every franchise, every sport, spreading it around, getting more exposure, trying to trying to expand the footprint of the sport itself. So think of it as it isn't just the Spurs that want to play in Austin, right? It's the NBA that wants to play in Austin. It isn't just the Spurs that want to play in Mexico City. The NBA wants to be there, too. I, I just think that's the way things are going. That's the that's the the wave of the future, and again, if they were the only team doing it, I, you'd be right to raise your eyebrows. But I don't think they are. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five says here a record number of Americans quit their jobs in March. Did you did you quit? Did you tell the jo- the boss he could take this job and love it? Uh, four and a half million, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. There are 11.5 million available jobs. We've never seen numbers like this. We've never seen anything like this. We've never seen this many people just walk away from work. We've never seen so many jobs go unfilled. One economist interviewed about these numbers said it's the greatest job seekers market of all time. But that's puzzling because every day I hear from people who say, Jack, I can you help me? Do you know of anybody who's hiring? I can't get, I've had people write to me and say I've gone on a hundred interviews or some high number. So I don't, I don't know how to explain that given these numbers. But what's also interesting 
and I don't think you can argue about this anymore. It was It was a theory, but it's becoming, I think, more of a established fact. We broke work in this country during 2020. We broke work. We took a, a basic concept, a basic assumption, which is that if you're able to work, you're supposed to be working. And we broke it. We created a virtue out of not working. Remember, stay home. Remember, remember you were a hero if you stayed home. You're a hero. We throw that word around too much, but you're a hero. You stayed home. You're a hero. And we had people in pretty high up influential positions in American life saying things like, it's selfish to go to work during a pandemic. Who do you think you are? Why, sure, you'll get a paycheck, but you'll kill grandma when you come home or some stuff like that. So we broke work. We created a virtue out of what used to be considered kind of a stigma or a liability. Like, what, why isn't he working? What, why is your son at home on the sofa all day? Shouldn't he be working? Oh, no. He's, are you kidding me? He's staying safe. 210-599-5555. Now, I know some people probably, it, it, within these... Uh, Four and a half million that quit their jobs doesn't mean that none of them are working. A lot of them quit their jobs to take some other job. And that's another thing that has been very interesting to watch. Because for people that are working, work has also changed. I have some friends that have moved to other places, you know, far away, but they still have the same job. Because their company said, we don't care where you live anymore, you can work remotely. And so one friend had always wanted to live up near his his folks uh, in the Dallas area, he moved up there. Still has the job that's here. Um, I know other people that want to move out into the, you know, into the country or uh, out into the, you know, Rocky Mountains or out somewhere else or want to return to where they grew up. And now they can, but they don't have to change jobs because they can do what they do from anywhere. Not everybody can do that, but people are quitting jobs, changing their work uh, environment, taking jobs that will give them that flexibility if the one they have now won't. That's very interesting. It's, and I, I will, again, I'll say not all of the 4.5 million that quit their jobs are not working, but it explains why there are so many jobs unfilled. We broke work, and people now know they don't have to take the first thing that comes along. At one time, I can I can attest to this, and maybe you can too, at one time... If you lost your job, and I've been in that position a couple of times, you were in a hurry to get the next one. I mean, you were, you would have crawled over broken glass because you it was it was very uncomfortable to have to explain to people that you were out of work. And it's not anymore. That's that has changed. Maybe maybe permanently, I don't know. 210-599-5555. So, are the Spurs sneaking out of town? Uh, what about, uh, all these unfilled jobs? And what about companies signaling their political positions? Do you need the brands and the products you buy or are loyal to? Do you need them to signal where they are on Roe v. Wade, where they are on issues, where they are on social matters? Or do you not care? There's a survey that says a majority of Americans want to know. And I'm one of those uh, in the minority. I don't. 
I don't want to know. I'm tired of politics. I'm, I'm tired of finding it everywhere I go. I want to find it where I want to find it. But when I'm in the, you know, the store to buy a pair of pants, I, I'm, I'm not there for politics, you know? I mean, what is, what is up with that? What does it say about your life, your soul, that you're filtering everything you do? Should I buy this mustard? What, who makes this? What, how do they feel about um, the Electoral College? I'm going to buy the other mustard. Are, are you one of those people? And, and it's okay if you are. I just want to understand. Got an unnamed emailer who says uh, the email address is jack at ktsa.com. He or she says, these out-of-town Spurs games don't mean they want to leave, but the Spurs do want a new arena somewhere between San Antonio and Austin, and they want to get fans up there interested. I think that's about right. I think that's about right. And not to open up a whole other can of worms, but, you know, there's this whole Metroplex thing that probably is happening, whether we like it or not. And, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of things that are of one city or the other, that are that are Austin things or San Antonio things are going to be both city things, and a lot of that will be good. Some of that will not be, uh, but yeah, I, I think that's probably part of what the Spurs are thinking. And I think they're also just marketing and branding, like all sports franchises and athletes are uh, are doing. So we'll talk about that two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five, and then uh, new uh, numbers out today from the Bureau of Labor Statistics: a record number of Americans quit. The job in March, and there are uh, over 11.5 million jobs unfilled. This is an ongoing thing, so we can't say this is because people are sick or they're fearing COVID. We broke work in this country. We changed the the dynamic of, of who should be working and that work is a positive thing. Um, I don't know why, why we would be surprised when we preached at people for a year and a half uh, that they didn't have to work, they shouldn't work. You don't need to leave your house. Um, you're, you're, you work for a non-essential business. You're non-essential. That's not a way to get people to go to work. Sylvester is at two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five on KTSA. Sylvester, good afternoon. Yeah, uh, good afternoon. Yeah, I'm not saying that we broke work, but work is broken. I think the more the, the more issue is is. That the, the schools are coming down the kid worse than ever before, worse than I've ever seen it. I've been out of school for almost 30 years, and, you know, I was in the county jail recently, and I tell you what, I mean, the youth of today is literally dumb. They don't know how to do anything, you know? All, these, all I heard was hustle this, hustle that, steal mm-hmm. this, rob that. You know, so I, are you saying are you saying that they don't want to work or that they're not smart enough to do the jobs that would hire them? I'm, uh, you know what? As a matter of fact, I'm saying the both of it because okay. I mean the schools aren't teaching the trades anymore. It's what it's not what I've heard. You, you know, most most high schools and junior highs aren't teaching trades anymore, like mm-hmm. welding, auto mechanics, and stuff like that. You know, and then the dumbing down of the kids and the TV. You know, everything you see on TV, it's a hustle this, a hustle that. Mm-hmm. You know, back in my day, you know, they, uh, you know, they show kids how to work, you know, how to move ahead, how to get ahead. You know, I think okay. more, more or less today, today's schools, I think the most that should be taught is reading and math. That's because I, mean, I love both of those subjects. 
and look, you know, I, I, I was taught by, by people that were masters at their craft, you know? And like right. I said, I was in the county for almost four months, or four months, right? I got out at the beginning of, of last month, and boom, within the, within the third day of being out of jail, I got me a job. Now, it's not yeah. a high-paid job, but it's, just, it's something that I know how to do. I'm mechanically inclined. I'm a problem yeah. solver. You know, I actually work on my own. I just think it starts at the schools. Like, they always yeah. say, it starts with the schools, and it starts at home. You know, I might Very good. to work for every, every day for 30 years with the city of San Antonio. You know? Yeah. And as soon as I was 16 years old, they put me at work. And you know what? I mean... Uh, other than being incarcerated and stuff like that, I work just about every day of my life, man. And, you know, I don't have very much to show for it, but I do, you know, it, I'm, I'm very happy, and I like going to work, and I like that paycheck that he's going to be. And I don't like robbing people or, or, or hustling people out of their money. I'd rather work for my own, because it feels damn good when that paycheck's in your hand. That's yeah. all i got to say. Thanks for letting me Thank you, sir. Hey, good luck with everything, too. I'm glad you got a job. I'm glad things are going well for you. Uh, great, it's a great take. Um, you know, when I was listening to Sylvester, I was thinking about, and, and this is going to sound kind of weird, but I'm just going to say it this way. Um, at one time, the public school system in America was kind of in on the strategy of training people to be Americans. So he was saying, you know, it taught the work ethic and... It upheld the virtue of work, but it also taught things like pride in your country. We taught why this is a unique and exceptional country and we are exceptional people. We taught the, the founding and, and what it means for the present, why we as a, as an, as a country in this world, uh, are held to a different standard and, and have, and have responsibilities that are different than any other countries. We were preparing, we were training Americans to to be Americans and think about all the things that have changed we teach that this is not a a fair or just country we teach that this is a country drenched in shame and remorse we teach that it's not exceptional we teach that it's just just another country in fact it's a it's a rigged one might not even be one of the better ones we don't teach the virtues of work we don't offer options like, hey, you don't have to go to college. You can learn a trade. You can go to work right after high school. It's okay. In fact, some people will. So, yeah, I think there's something to be said for a public education system that was in on the deal. That said, okay, our job is to um, hone and, and uh, you know, shape the American character, the kind of people that a country like ours needs whether they wear the uniform of this country, whether they wear the uniform of a delivery uh, service, whether they drive a cab, whether they wear a white lab coat, whatever they're going to put on, whatever job they're going to do, we're preparing them to be productive and to get the deal that is America. Now, if you don't prepare people for that, if you don't have a, a, a plan for that, then, yeah, you turn out a bunch of people with a bunch of different disparate diverse, that's the big word, right, uh, ideas. And then you can't, when you want them to be cohesive, when you want to pull them all together, when you want to say, hey, we're all in the same boat, you can't. It's not a surprise. The people that designed the previous approach kind of knew what they were doing. The people in charge now, I don't think have any idea. 
It's a great point. Thank you, Sylvester. In the meantime, here on the Jack Riccardi Late Afternoon Show, it's time for the Roman Empire. Ladies and gentlemen, here he is. <laughs> like, you haven't heard that like before. It. You like it? Got a little ring to it. Yeah, yeah. a little ring to it. The Roman Empire, I, comedian Roman Garcia. Look, Jack, I, you, you know, you're Duran Duran thing. That's not a good way to start off because it just gets me on a bad note. <laughs> no pun intended, but, you know, I just... Well, I threw Dolly Parton in there, too, though. Yeah, yeah, that's always, yeah, that's real rock and roll there, you know. I, I used to, I, there yeah. were guys in music radio that used to refer to Duran Duran as Double D, but see, I really didn't want to say that, <laughs> and then, <laughs> so I yeah. didn't. So, and that's, a, that's a qualification now. There's yeah, I'm not going to. kind of Double D thing going on. You not going to go there. Listen, I thought of you when I saw this, I thought of you when I saw this Dave Chappelle story, because not only are you a stand-up comedian, but your, your son is doing it now. He was just on with us. Uh, yeah. recently, and I mean, this is crazy. It is crazy. I mean, what in the world is going on? First of all, you pay money to come and do a show, to have a good time, and you're uh, assaulting the comedian. Now, someone told me, they actually posted and they tagged me, they said, hey, Roman, watch out, you know, it's getting crazy out there, and I reminded them of the age demographic of my audience, I said, look, they don't even want to stand up, much less try to hop on a stage. They just—they're just not going to get there. You, you feel like, like you would see them. You feel like you would see them coming, is what you're saying. I'd see them coming a, a mile away. You know, I'd hear oh, the grunts okay. and groans as they first got up. So, but anyway, but back to the stage. Like, I, I, to me, this—whoever this person was. I don't think it was one of those like, oh, Dave Chappelle was heckling him and he decided to attack him. I don't know. To me, I, I just don't see that it was that. We'll wait to hear the details. But the guy, you know, I don't know. He probably went with the intention of hurting Dave Chappelle. But I don't. But I think this guy already had something going on with Dave Chappelle. Don't you think, that, though, that we're seeing the result of we've just come through two years of people seeing on television, you know, a, a department store on fire or an auto parts store on fire yeah. and a reporter saying it's a mostly peaceful uh, protest. So, right, right. you know, we're saying words matter and words can hurt. We're banning words, but then we're not right. using them truthfully either. Right. That, that, that's right. And, and, and that's a good point. You know, Jack, this whole thing of people getting caught up in words, you know, like like we've talked about this before, like like a, a movie, let's say like a Blazing Saddles. It uses certain words that people now would lose their mind over. You've got people now raising a stink over the King Tut song that Steve Martin did. And, mm -hmm. and it's like you're caught up in the words as opposed to what is behind it. You know, certain things, words are said, but a lot of times they're used to make fun of the thing that we don't like, like racism or white supremacy or, you know, whatever, feminism. You know, hey, but, you know, just whatever. And, and so, again, people need to stop being such babies. Well, I like, think that's you know, a good just, point. You know, a, a, a comedian can really be almost a surgeon, uh, right. As far as, you know, filleting a ridiculous idea or a uh, indefensible viewpoint. And, you know, the great comedians have also exactly. been, like, on the cutting edge of, of, of doing that in society, right? I mean, you think of, like, a George right. Carlin, right? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly he, right now. Yeah, like, like George Carlin and, 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 you know, Richard Pryor and different things yeah. like that. You know, just, you, you know, they do, they, they kind of... Uh, cut to the to the bone of what's happening here. They'll show something, the ridiculousness of something, or like I've and we need that. Before, 
Yeah, you could they the, the the comedy you can take a monster and minimize it down to where it's no longer something scary, you know. And and so to get just so hung up on words or I, I had a friend one time years back with Dave Chappelle when I first started watching the Chappelle show and I'm like, Oh my god, this show is genius and she tells me, I can't watch it because he's so racist. <laughs> uh, what? Like what? Yeah. Like again, they were caught up in the imagery or the words, right. not realizing he's mocking the racism. He's, he's mocking, mocking racism, right? The 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 political organization. He he, you know, he had a bit about the you know consent, you know, with 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 sex that you had to sign a contract before you did anything. You know, he's making fun of how overboard things went. You know, yeah, right. consent is one thing, but then you when you had people saying this person looked at me the wrong way, so I feel like that was sexual assault. You know, he so, would take these things and, and, make, and make fun of them. Like, come on. And Dave's so does, does what's happening to Dave Chappelle now, does it sharpen that, that, that scalpel that comedians wield, or does it make comedy uh, step back and go, well, we're going to have to maybe have more security, we're going to do shorter sets, we're going to avoid some topic? I mean, what, what, what will the influence of this be? I, I tell you, what, I have I have some. I had a friend that joked today. My good friend Eric Schwartz, he he joke, uh, jokingly, but then he's kind of you know obviously it bothered him to see this happen. He said, okay, all my comedy now is just going to be done via Zoom. You know, like that's it. But but the truth is, knowing comedians and the way they are, they're going to push into this even more and say, you know what? Now I'm going to say even more stuff. Now I I I want you to jump up on this stage. Like that's the way most comedians are. They can really get in your face on stuff like this. So I don't think comedians are going to shirk back at all. If anything, I think this is going to push them to do even more. And maybe even comedians who are like, I don't know if I want to get that edge of it. I think they're going to do it even more. Because you know what? That's just the way I think we're kind of built like that, you know? And here's the thing. Comedians have been assaulted on stage before. You can go back and Google stuff and go to YouTube. There's, there's comedians that have been assaulted on, assaulted on stage. But I think like what happened like with the Will Smith thing, it was so high profile and everybody saw it that it really brought in awareness to, like, what in the world? And now the problem is you'll have copycats or people who mm-hmm. just some weirdo that wants to get in the, in the you know, on TMZ, and you'll have all this stuff. But I remember there was a guy one time where he, he had a heckler, and, um, and, the, and, and this, the, the comedian would use a guitar in his set. So he's playing the guitar, and the heckler comes up to jump, in, uh, jump on him on stage, and this dude took the guitar straight to that guy's face, and broke his guitar straight up on this guy's face. And then with well, the broken guitar, tried to put it back on his neck and start playing again and do jokes. You got to love that. I, I will say this. I agree with you that there, there's none of these things are happening for the first time. But the, the difference between then and now is that uh, eight gazillion people have watched, uh, right. you know, Will Smith gets right. uh, or slap uh, Chris Rock millions of times. You didn't have right. that repetition and normalcy with the, right. the incidents you talked about in the past. The only people that knew it happened were the people at the show, and, and so that's why I, I, I my mind went to copycat immediately. And I think yeah. we're just seeing the beginning of more and more incidents like this. Because if there's I, I anything you object to, you you believe it is your right to go and assault the person you object to. Right. And we've built up to this, Jack. Like you said, over the past, you know, a few years or so, we've built up to this where people have said, right, I don't like what you said, so I'm going to shout you down or I'm going to 
put your address out there and we're going to go attack your home or I'm going to confront you right. uh, publicly in the streets. And you have politicians telling people it's OK to do that. And now so now that's kind of the, the, the normal thing of, you know what, I don't like it. I'm going to go and attack it, not only verbally, but physically. And that's yeah. that that's just the insane level. But your expectation, you're saying your expectation is that the the net result of this will be comedy that is even more daring. I, I I think so. I think so. Knowing knowing me and the way I feel about it, and knowing my yeah. comedian friends who are in the same vein, I I feel that's what's going to happen. That they're not they're not going to shirk back. They're going to lean even more into it. And they're going to say, okay, more controversial, more cutting edge. And in that vein, yeah. Roman would like to announce, Roman would like to announce his knock knock joke <laughs> concert, which will be next yeah. weekend. No. Right. Yeah, we, we call it the blue show. Come on out. <laughs> hear me use a curse word or two. <laughs> what do you have coming up? Anything, uh, you have any gigs locally coming up here? Oh, you know, you know what? Um, I, I love when I ask I you that. You always act like, I really don't know. I don't know what I'll be doing. It, you know, here's the thing, Jack. My, my schedule has become so loose that I, oh. I, I am in fear that I'm going to miss something because I've become so, I, I've cut back on so much stuff that I do, when yeah. I do have like a show or something, I, I really got to pay attention to be there, you know? Yeah. So, um, I do have a couple things. I don't have it off the top of my head right now, but we've been traveling a lot. That's the thing. We've been traveling. We just got back from Vegas and, uh, yeah, you were there during the NFL news. draft, right? We were there to the NFL draft, right? It was and it was so funny because, as you probably are well aware, Jack, I'm not a big sports guy, you know. And so my friends who are big sports guys were so mad that I was there for that, and I'm walking around saying really ridiculous things like, you know. Can I just say though, I, I am a big sports guy, and that would not appeal to me because why do you want to be? At, I want to be at an NFL game. Right. I don't want to be at the NFL draft. What 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 is the excitement of that? There's no nobody's getting tackled. I don't understand. I'm missing it. I don't well, I don't get it. A few people getting tackled, which is oh, maybe. a whole other thing. How these guys just because you 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 like opposing teams, you feel the need to fight in the streets. Like I was like, oh, so guys? they were fighting over the draft choices. Yeah, they're fighting over draft wow. choices. You know, someone's walking down the street with a jersey from another team, and they start harassing them and oh. telling them stuff, and they're all drinking. They see you know, guys are fighting, which I just thought was hilarious. I'm like, this is wait, there was world. drinking? What? <laughs> there was all kinds of drinking, Jack. There was all kinds of things I can't even mention because what happened that changes today, everything. But here's the thing: right. I wasn't there for the draft. We just happened to be there, and we were right. having fun. And my wife wanted to stay up yesterday next to me, and they're like, oh, this is going on. But it was a nice big party, you know. And, and yeah. Wayne Newton is back to doing shows, so that's the other good thing. Well, we can, tr- <laughs> <laughs> we can truly – America's back in that case. No <laughs> argument there. America's uh, back, ladies and gentlemen. Wayne Newton right. is yeah, performing no again. Yeah, Wayne Newton on stage, N- or you know what? No. N- yeah. No. You, you attack line. Wayne Newton, you've attacked America, I think. it's. Let's just yeah, say yeah. it that you, way. You can attack me, but you don't attack yeah. Wayne. That guy's an icon. There you icon. go. All right. Well, look, I uh, make, keep your head on a swivel. Uh, yes. Let us know when you're doing a show, and uh, come back here anytime. I always love having you. Roman Garcia, thank you. All right, Jack. Thanks. All right. Have a good afternoon. Congratulations to 2022 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. Pat Benatar, Duran Duran, um, and Dolly Parton, who had not wanted, at one point had said she didn't think she should be uh, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but the voters disagreed, and it looks like she will accept her uh, her election. I, the one that's stunning to me 
Uh, so it was it was Pat Benatar, it was Duran Duran, Dolly Parton, the Rhythmics, uh, Eminem, Lionel Richie, Carly Simon. I know. <laughs> I I'm not a voter. I'm just passing it along. But the one that's stunning is Pat Benatar because if you remember pop music in the '80s, Pat Benatar was was one of the most dominant female singers, and in terms of pure rock, probably the most dominant female rock and roll singer of the 1980s. How, how is she only now getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? So that that's a no-brainer and good for her and, and Neil. Um, and I, you know, we, we talked about this before. I, I guess you're stretching the definition of rock. If you're, if, you're, if you're saying that Lionel Richie is a rocker, then I guess Dolly Parton's a rocker, you know? I, I mean, I guess... Uh, I guess I guess Liberace should be in there. I don't know. I don't I don't really understand, but yeah, the rhythmics I get. Duran Duran, okay. Um we we talked about this on the show uh one other time and uh, people really loved it and I wanted to ask the question again because when you hear about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, chances are you've seen one of these bands or artists at one point, right? You've probably been to one of these shows. What was the first concert that you ever went to. Who was it? Where was it? When was it? What was the first concert you ever went to? And the, and the last time we talked about this, I really had to think to make sure I was right about this because, you know, your, your memory goes after a while. It was a long time ago. I was a teenager. Uh, but the first, <laughs> the first concert I went to see was Chicago. And they were playing. I lived in Boston. And they used to have a series of concerts called Concerts on the Common, Boston Common. And um, I think I had tried to get my parents to let me go to other concerts before. My memory on this is that um, the reason I wound up going to Chicago, me and a friend went, is because I was able to persuade them that, look, this is a this is a band with brass instruments and they're middle-aged guys and it's going to be on Boston Common and... You know, I think they were just afraid of like, you know, a stadium show or headbangers or whatever. So I think I was able to sell them on Chicago. Like that's, that's practically a, that's practically a country club, you know, band or something. I mean, I'm not putting them down. I love Chicago. I love them then. I love them now. But, uh, that was my first one. And it was my first one because I could get, I could basically get permission to go to it. What, what was your first concert you ever went to see? Do you remember your first, uh, ever concert? Uh, yes. Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. It was actually connected to my college. Um, they, we got rid of our home, we got rid of the football program. So that got rid of homecoming. So they had to replace it with something. So they did, um, a college, uh, uh, concert series. And so, um, it was, I forget who it was the first year. Um, but they had different acts come through like, uh, Casey and the Sunshine Band showed up one year. Uh, Coheed and Cambria and Snoop Dogg. Um, yeah, That's why, quite a variety. Yeah, definitely a variety. Definitely, it was interesting seeing Snoop Dogg on a college campus. Um, I was wondering where the administrators were. They're going to freak out, or um, I'm like, is he going to, you know, pull out one of his special treats and you know enjoy it on the stage? Or what I uh, we we had a, a similar experience. I went to Boston University, and the year before I got there, they hosted a concert on campus with the cars that resulted in some 
I don't know, I think some windows got broken. There was some craziness, and the cars aren't that, you know, not like it's, it's not that extreme, but apparently it scared the university so badly that the following year um, they booked Atlanta Rhythm Section, which <laughs> is like a soft rock, you know, like middle of the, it's like, it was like, what? our parents listen to Atlanta Rhythm Section, We're not, why is that, why are they here? And it was, it was like the difference between the band the students wanted and the band the university wanted. Yeah. But my first and, actual concert, yeah. actually going, uh, yeah. was Leonard Skinnerd with the Doobie Brothers opening Look for at them. you. Yeah. That was, uh, luckily I had a buddy who was interning at a classic rock station in New York. He got free tickets and I was the designated yeah. driver. So it worked out. <laughs> it's, uh, I try not to talk a lot about, experiences i had with concerts through working in radio because then everyone will hate me yeah i mean you don't (laughs) yeah i haven't even told i haven't told even a a, a half the stories i could tell but um maybe maybe one day but right now i don't want to be hated for that reason so i've I've given them other reasons to hate me so uh that's our question first concert you went to the rock and roll hall of fame uh inductees performer inductees are out Pat Benatar, Duran Duran, Eminem, Eurythmics, Dolly Parton, apparently she's going to accept, Lionel Richie, and Carly Simon, Judas Priest, and Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are going to be inducted in the musical excellence category. Uh, And they're right about those two. If you don't know Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, look up a a list of all the things they did, all the people they worked with, and they're they're hit makers. They're a hit factory. so the ones that did not get in, the ones that were not voted in, included uh, Rage Against the Machine, Dionne Warwick, Beck, Kate Bush, running up that hill, Devo, uh, MC5, New York Dolls. So um, with that in mind, with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in mind, what was your first concert? Did it have to be a rock concert? May have been. May have been a country and western band. It may have been blues. It may have been, maybe it was, it was uh, a, a concert you went to with your family. My niece, her first few concerts, uh, she went with her parents, which is fine if you have the kind of parents that can hang with, you know, the kind of music you want to hang with. Uh, my parents would not have been those people. You can't bring Lawrence Welk people to, you know, to a, uh, to a Whitney Houston concert. It doesn't work. Uh, 210-599-5555. Whitney Houston was my second concert. So. Uh, let's start with, um, I want to start with Brian on KTSA, 210-599-5555. Brian, your first concert. Hey, uh, I was uh, in the eighth grade living in Harlingen at the time, and me and uh, about eight buddies saved up money to go spend spring break in a hotel room without a parent, no chaperone, and we had the time of our lives. And Anyway, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, eighth grade? Yes, can you believe it? I, I, and I have I have a teenager now, so I just can't imagine, you know, letting my teenager go and spend spring break. And the only reason I got to go is because my older brother was going with his high school friends. So let's eighth graders okay. all like, hey, let's put our money together. Okay, yeah. So we say, but anyway, they we're having so much fun experiencing things for the first time. I'm sure you can imagine. And uh, they, we heard, hey, there's a concert at the Jetties at South Padre Island. Uh, Got to go. And so we showed up there, and there's thousands of uh college kids from all over you know upper upper up north and uh anyway we're in the in the front row and here comes this guy in 105 degree heat right there on the beach 
comes sits on a stool with a poncho and a and a hat, and I didn't know who he was, but it was a it was a young Stevie Ray Vaughan. Wow. And we got to see him play acoustic guitar right there on, on the beach, and after he played, Jefferson Starship came on, and that was when they had that hit, We Built This City, so it wasn't right. the greatest. But and then Cheap Trick, holy cow! And then just, Cheap Trick, wow! Yeah, I was a huge Cheap Trick fan forever after that. So Stevie Ray Vaughan was like the opening act. Yeah, by himself, wow. without a band, wearing a poncho and a big yeah. old hat, and just yeah. playing acoustic guitar and playing the blues and ripping it. And but we were just too young and drunk to appreciate it at the time. But now that I'm yeah. older, I'm like. Dang, and by drunk you mean you were drunk you were drunk with the excitement of being yes drunk yeah, with joy okay. for being, yeah drunk being with joy there. yeah I understand what you mean yeah. well that is some kind of um that is some kind of eighth grade uh, story you've just you've just destroyed everybody else's uh, eighth grade memories everybody else thought they were cool in eighth grade Brian right. and his friends went to a rock concert at South Padre saw Stevie Ray Vaughan. Jefferson Airplane and Cheap Trick. Wow. Brian, great call. Thank you. Thanks for that. We should, we should just end the show now, right? No, I'm only kidding. I want to hear your story. I want to hear your first concert, whatever it was. I mean, mine was Chicago, you know. That, that now doesn't seem so cool, but that's okay. I'm not taking it back. 210-599-5555. Cody says his first was Aerosmith. And his parents took him. He was 16. Um, yeah, I, I, I cannot even... I didn't ask my parents to take me. I cannot imagine them there. I, I can't even physically, like, place them in the... Like, just in my imagination, like, in the seats. Like, it just doesn't... The, the, I could maybe see them driving me, but not, not going in. No. They just weren't... That wasn't their deal, you know? They were pre-rock and roll uh, people. 210-599-5555. Your first concert, Ted, is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. What was it, Ted? Well, it was um, it was uh, kind of a little-remembered band called Foghat. It was pretty oh, yeah. cool for the city, right? Yeah. And they were the headliner. Uh, the uh, backup band, as we used to call it, the backup band was another completely unknown and never made anything out of themselves. Band called Kansas. Wow! Uh, you know, nobody heard of them, and uh, so that was my first rock concert. But mm-hmm. when you you mentioned you know that it didn't have to be a rock concert, I I had to think back and actually the very first actual real concert that that I ever attended, and it was with my parents, um, was believe it or not, Antonio Aguilar and Flor Silvestre. In the bull fighting arena in Guadalajara, Mexico. <laughs> wow. Oh, that is very cool. And Man, you've had was, some kind of life. It was pretty cool. Yeah. So, anyway. And how old were you when you saw that? The Antonio Aguilera was, yeah. uh, I must have been 13. Yeah. And, uh, how about that? I, you said you're a Chicago fan. You mentioned you're a Chicago fan. Let me, yeah, let me I am. Just, yeah. uh, let me, let me just, uh, uh, tell you something. It's kind of a must-have if you're a Chicago nut geek like I am. Uh, try to find yourself the the, quad, the Chicago Quadio box set. Okay. It's all of this stuff in quadraphonic. Oh, cool. Okay. I will. I'll look for that. And it's absolutely amazing. Ted, thank you. Great call. Great memories. Uh, Fog had his first rock concert with Kansas.
210-599-5555. Your first concert, where, when, with whom. And Gennaro is on KTSA. Hey, Gennaro. Hey, Jack. How you doing, man? I'm good. What you got for us? Uh, my first concert was KISS. I believe it was 1979. It was mm-hmm. the Dynasty Tour. It was at the Hemisphere Arena, and my Uncle Richard took me. I was in fifth grade. Wow. Now, how and, old was uh, your uncle? Was he a young guy, or was he? My uncle was about 19. Okay, I so was, he, was a, I was he was a cool uncle. Yeah, he was a cool uncle. Uh, we've gone to a lot of concerts together. Um, when we walked into the Hemisphere Arena, there was a huge cloud of smoke just filling up half the <laughs> arena top and i was like i was asking my uncle uh what's that funny smell yeah, yeah. and he's like uh, don't worry about it just you know enjoy the show and yeah. um we yeah. snuck seats to where we were right to the left of the stage maybe about 50 60, no, maybe 60 feet away from the stage, and hmm. they, they had these flame pyrotechnics that shot up. Uh, I can't even tell you, more than yeah. 40 feet maybe, and we could feel the heat. Yeah. And that was a tour where the, when they came out with that song, um, it was a disco era, when they came out with that song, I Was Made for Loving You, <laughs> and I still have the tour book. If you start singing, I'm hanging up on you. You know that. No, no. <laughs> okay. All right. No, Just but don't uh, even... it was fabulous. It was fabulous. Yeah. And after that, I I have been a rock and roll. Well, no, I've seen yeah. Barry Manilow, too. I love Barry. Yeah. Um, no, but, Ki- but if I, Kiss I, rocks I your face to... off in the fifth grade, you're, 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 you're set for life. I mean, that's, that's a great way to start. <laughs> Kathleen says first concert was the Steve Miller Band in 1972. Great stories here. Uh, Jennifer says, George Michael. I was 12. My mom took four of us screaming 12-year-old girls in Dallas. It was 1988, and he was top of his game. I cried. And George Michael would be a great show. I didn't ever get to see him in concert. I'm sure that would have been a great show. All right, 210-599-5555. Your first concert, as today is the day they announced the new Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees. Just want to know who and where and when, if you remember. And Harry is on KTSA. Hi, Harry. Yeah, how you doing? Good. What was your first one? Ray Charles in about 1955. I was in, uh, I think I was in the eighth grade in Houston. Wow. Wow. Do you remember uh, anything about it? Well, it was downtown in the old Houston Coliseum, which is kind of like the Joe and Harry Freeman Coliseum in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, it was segregated. Uh, wow! The, all of all of the black fans were on the ground floor and in and around the the front of the band, and all of the white fans were up in the bleachers. And uh, I mean, it was it was uh, I was it was the first time for me, and I thought it was yeah. fantastic. We really enjoyed yeah. it, and I don't remember any of the songs back then because I'm almost eighty one years old now. But yeah. it was it was a big deal for an eighth grade kid. That is that's a very cool memory, and boy, when you talk about a an audience that was segregated, you know you're going back a long, long way. Harry, thank you for the call tonight. I appreciate that.
Ray Charles, so good for so long, right? So many decades, so many generations. And one of those uh, artists that so many young artists wanted to work with and and have uh, on their albums and work, you know, do a duet with or have a guest appearance with. 210-599-5555. All right. First concert. Who where was it? When was it? Where was it? And Kirk is on KTSA. Hi, Kirk. Hey, Jack. Good evening. Uh, for me, it was uh, Chris Cornell. In March of 2000, at uh, La Zona Rosa on Fifth Street in Austin, and cool little story. At the time, my girlfriend and I were doing like a long distance relationship, and she flew in, and uh, we've been here in the, in the 210 for a couple of days. And I said, "Let's go up to Austin," and we were going up there. And this is 2000. We didn't have smartphones, you know. So I said, "Hey, grab the map out of the glove box out of my '94 Chevy pickup." And when she opened up the glove box, I already had those tickets there. That's back back when you had that paper ticket, you know. And right, right. She, she loved she loved yeah. Bush and Chris Cornell right. and all the all the grunge, you know. And I knew yeah. I knew that. And so we went there on Fifth Street, uh, not Sixth. Fifth is where the right. where the adults tend to go, you know. And right. Uh, and uh, Chris Cornell, this is between Soundgarden and Audio Slave, and he crowd surfed. And it was just a great time. It was just a great memory, you know. That is and, a great uh, memory. You know, you, anymore, you... but it was a great time. Yeah, yeah, no, he 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 was taken way too soon, but you really made that come alive. I mean, you have a great sharp memory of that from being over twenty years ago. Good job, Kirk. Thank you, uh, and good job with the girlfriend too, having the tickets in the glove box. I like that. Smooth. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. Up behind a lot of great music. Uh, Kent writes to jackktsa.com. First concert was Foreigner along with Kansas in El Paso. So there's Kansas again. They keep popping up. Uh, let's get to Tony next on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Hi, Tony. Hey, how you doing today? Good. What was your first concert? Uh, my first concert was in, I think it was in 85, 86 maybe. It was at Six Flags over Texas in Arlington. And it was Cheap Trick. And they were very popular when I was in high school. Uh, they're not flashy, and yeah. but they just rock and roll, man. I mean, yeah. uh, those dudes just get after it. And Yeah, they're, they're the real uh, deal. Yeah, and but the thing is, it was like my girlfriend or ex, ex-wife, whatever you want to call her, they hate them. You know, it's kind of like high school music, I guess, you know, oh. if you understand what I'm saying. But, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. they can't stand it. That's yeah. so stupid. You know, they, <laughs> they didn't, they really didn't get a hit until it came out with the flame. And right, people, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, that was my first concert, and we were smoking and drinking. We were doing some things we shouldn't have been doing. But, hey, that's when you're young and you have a good time. So, yeah, there you that go. was it. All right, Tony, I appreciate the call, sir. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for the call. I would have to say, and I'm not a, I'm by no means an expert, but I would say the live of Budokan album might be one of the best live concert albums any rock band's ever done. So, yeah, Cheap Tricks, serious stuff.
KTSA News Time is 637. This half hour, the results on our Stevens Roofing JR poll. And we're going to wish one of the all-time great jazz artists a happy birthday today, Ron Carter. Turning 85 today. I'll tell you something about Ron Carter you may never have heard, too, coming up. All right, we're talking about your first concert that you ever went to. How was it? Where was it? Who was it? 210-599-5555. You can email me, jack at ktsa.com. Vicky in Austin says it was Berlin. It was complicated. Band Berlin. Uh, Bobby says he went to see Dick Clark's Caravan of Stars that included at the time Herman's Hermits, Billy Stewart, Chubby Checker, Mel Carter, and Leslie Gore. Great Quincy Jones. Made Leslie Gore a star. Uh, again, the email's jack at ktsa.com. Ed says my first concert was Leon Russell in the old convention center downtown in 1970. Got some great photos of him right by the stage. Uh, KM says October 1956, State Fair of Texas. My cousin and I hopped the fence to see Elvis Presley in the Cotton Bowl. I was 13, he was 14. Those were good times. Um, Emmett says, my first concert was Scorpions and Alice Cooper. My dad took me in the 90s, then Metallica during the load tour. Uh, he has a lot that he lists here, but uh, first one was, that's, that's a pretty good one for the first one, Scorpions and Alice Cooper. Um, all kinds of things, all kinds of eras. Let me get to uh, John next on KTSA. Hi, John. Hey, Jack. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm very good. Uh, yeah, my first concert, uh, my mom took me to see the Beatles at Comiskey Park in Chicago in 1965. Wow. You must have been a baby. I, I was six years old. I just turned six, and she took uh, me and my sister, who was five. And uh, our mom is still living, and she was, she was a cool chick then. She still is. Yeah. And, uh, wow. So that was my first concert. That I mean, to see the Beatles for your first concert, I mean, where do you go from there, right? Absolutely. And uh, I remember when we got there, so they had the stage set up on where second base would be, because Comiskey Park is where the White Sox play. Right. And the Beatles come running out of the dugout, and then that's all you could hear. There was so much screaming going on. Yeah. That it, was, it was hard to hear the music, but it, it was yeah. wild. And I mean, I remember that. That's some kind of experience. And what a great memory when you're six years old. John, thank you for sharing that. Uh, Joe's uh, first concert was also the Beatles. Hi, Joe. Yeah, also the Beatles, and I, I think it was 64, but it may have been 65. It was the Hollywood Bowl on my birthday, August 16th. Wow. Wow. Uh, my Aunt Wanda bought the tickets, and uh, unfortunately, she bought one for my sister. I didn't want her to go, but <laughs> she's like a few years younger, but she went too. And uh, okay. couldn't hear a thing. Yeah. Uh but uh, it was amazing because that was pretty much the height of when they came out. My yeah. second concert was pretty good, too. That was a Big Brother and the Holding Company at uh, San Bernardino Municipal Auditorium. And then my third concert was also pretty good, uh, Buffalo Springfield at the wow. Orange Show in San wow. Bernardino. I wish, I wish I was related to Aunt Wanda. That's a pretty good. That's a pretty good trio right there. You're right. She was one. That, she went too, though, which uh, was pretty amazing. That's amazing. That's a great lineup. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate the call. That's we do we have. 
We have the coolest, right? We have the coolest listeners. I mean, the lives they've lived. Wow. So, that's what it would have sounded like at the Hollywood Bowl, if you could have heard them. Um, Dean says, my first concert was Tom Petty at Ohio University. In 1979, Mike is next on KTSA. Hi, Mike. Hey, hi, Jack. How you doing? Good. What was your first concert? Do you remember? My, yeah, oh, sure. 1974 at the Providence Civic Center, Providence, Rhode Island, Three Dog Night. Three Dog Night. Wow. We just played Shambhala last night on the show's bumper music. They had so many hits, you can't even remember them all. And I still have the Golden Biscuit album on a cassette. There you go. Good for you. How old were you when you saw Three Dog Night? Uh, I was a senior in high school, so 16. That is very cool. Providence Civic Center. Very good. Thank you, Mike. I did. I, I had a, uh, worked at a radio station where we had a concert with... Um, now, this was in the 80s, so these guys were all a little, you know, getting up there. But we had um, Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, the Classics Four and Three Dog Night, and each of us disc jockeys were going to get to introduce one of the acts, and I so wanted to introduce (laughs) Three Dog Night, but I got Gary Puckett in the Union Gap, which wasn't too bad. Um, You know, I didn't say to them, oh, I'll settle for you, but, uh, you know, Three Dog Night, that would have been cool. 210-599-5555, April is next on KTSA. First concert, April. Hey, Jack. I love listening to your show. My first concert oh, was staying down at the Freeman Auditorium System. Uh, Freedom, yeah, Freeman. Anyway, 88-ish, 16-ish. Oh, yeah. So he'd gone solo and he was doing his uh, solo thing? Yep, and my uh, manager at my weekend job, I think her husband worked for Ticketmaster. I don't know. She was pregnant, didn't want to go. I scored third row ticket. Third row ticket. Wow. Wow. So me and my best friend, who is still oh. my best friend, yep. got to see it. And his backup singer, I remember, was mesmerizing. That's, that sounds like a very cool show. I, I, As much as I love the police, I really liked Sting Solo, too. I think he did some great stuff. And were you a big yes, fan, yes. or you just took the concert tickets because oh, yeah. they were available? or? Oh, no. Big fan. Big fan. Okay, what a great, what a great experience. Nineteen eighty-eight. Thank you, April. Appreciate the call. Appreciate the kind words. Jim is on the radio. Hi, Jim. Hey, Jack. Good to talk to you. Yeah, good to have My you. Concert, you remember your first one? Denver. I was, I was nineteen. I saw the Clash in Austin City Coliseum. Hey, nineteen's not that late. I think that's, I think that's a good. Uh, you know, you're old enough to have a little fun. And what were they like seeing the Clash in '79? It was great. That was the Combat Rock Tour, the album that had Rock the Casbah, mm-hmm. and Should I Stay or Should I Go? But the other memorable thing about it was when we got to the Coliseum, everybody's kind of milling around, waiting to go in, mm-hmm. and this Cadillac drives up, and this guy is dressed like an Arabian sheik, and he says, hey, we're filming a promotional tour for the rest of the concert, for the rest of the tour, and we'd mm-hmm. like you all to line up. And so they made us line up in two lines, and they got this armadillo out, and they made him run up and down between us. And then we're like, this is crazy, what's going on? And then, you know, we went to the concert. concert was great. And then about a month later, I'm with my best friend who went with me to the concert. We're watching MTV at home. MTV was pretty new at the time. And then, hey, new Clash video, Rock the Casbah. And they show them they're playing out by some oil wells. 
And then they show Austin Coliseum. We're like, hey, <laughs> we were there. And then they show that armadillo running up and down. And it's like, whoa, that was us. That was us. <laughs> Could you see yourself in the video or was it not? Did you not get included in the? Well, we re- we recorded it. We slowed it down, and I can see my blue yeah. Adidas tennis shoes I had at the time, and I'm, I know that was, that was. Oh, that is amazing! Wow, I, I I have never met anyone that was in a Clash video, so that is very cool, Jim. That's a great story. I mean, you might have waited till you were 19, but then you made it count, right? That's right. That's a great story. Thank you for that. We're going to get to more of these coming up here. Maybe one or two more. Actually, you know what? Let me let me get to two more here because I'm just going to. I'm going to bend the rules a little bit here. I want to get to two more before we run out of time. And John is on the radio. Hi, John. Hey, how are you, Jack? Good, John. Do you remember your first concert? You bet. It was Chicago Transit Authority. Oh. It was in February of 69 in a small community college in Reading, Pennsylvania. Probably held about 2,500 people. I was about sixth row from the Mm. audience, uh, from the stage. And uh, it was it just it just bonded me to Chicago yeah. for for life. Yeah. And then you uh, so you saw them at the then, beginning because they were only Chicago Transit Authority for a few years. And uh, what was that like? What 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 were they like back then? Oh, it was awesome. It was just horns and and the whole rendition. You know, the horns and the, the guitars and everything. That was. And then later they went to CTA and then they went to Chicago. Right. Um, that's how the, the evolution, evolution went because they had a, a conflict with the Chicago Transit Authority, the rail service out in Chicago. Yeah. And then in 77, I went to Marshall Tucker. I'm sitting outside of a hotel in Indianapolis, and the bus pulls up, and I had just graduated from college a year before, and I said, are you guys in town? The guy said, yeah. I said, man, I listen to your music all the time. I love it. He says, well, are you going to the, the concert? And I said, no, I'm from Chicago. I just down here on business. Well, would you like to go? I said, sure. Two front row seats. <laughs> <laughs> You're a good guy to know, John. I'm going to start sitting next to you from now on. All right, sir. Thank you for the call. Let me get one more in here before we run out of time. And Alan, it is. Alan, do you remember your first concert? Uh, yeah, it was uh, Led Zeppelin in 1975 in Houston. Oh, what do you remember about it? How old were you? I was in the eighth grade. I went with my eighth sister, my grade. older sister and her boyfriend. And I do remember pulling up in the parking lot. Yeah. Sorry, what? Did they make? Did, and, uh, did, were my you? Sister looks at me and says, "Go ahead. I'm sorry." No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Alan. My, 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 we pull up in the parking lot. My sister looks at, turns around, and looks at me, and goes, uh, "If anybody hands you anything, just say no, thank you." <laughs> did your parents make her take you, or did she want to take you? No, she took. I hung. Uh, most of my friends were like her friends. I hung up. She oh, was really okay. cool. I hung up. You know, all the time. She dragged me to the beach and all over the place. She's a very cool sister to take you along on a date to see Led Zeppelin. That is very cool. Yeah, well, her boyfriend and I, we race motorcycles together, so, you know. There you go. All right, we've got a little Miles Davis here. song called Summer Night. I'll explain in a minute why I'm playing this. But first, really quick on the JR poll, powered by Stevens Roofing, true or false, you want the brands and products you use to speak out on political issues. Is that true or false? Tonight on the JR poll, 91% said that's false. 9% said that's true. We'll have a new JR poll tomorrow. We get started at 4 or anytime. You can find it at KTSA.com. 
Today is the 85th birthday of the great American jazz man Ron Carter, born May 4th, 1937. No one has ever played the bass and double bass on more records or been recorded on more jazz albums than Ron Carter. That's not me saying that. That's the Guinness Book of World Records. He's been active in the music scene since the 50s. He just performed as recently as a couple of weeks ago in New York City. And Ron Carter has been on over 2,000 recording sessions with everyone from Miles Davis. This is 1964's Summer Night. Uh, all the way to people like Billy Joel. Rock stars, jazz stars. Everybody wants Ron Carter. And Ron Carter's story is an interesting one. He's not really a household name outside of the jazz world. But he is so good at what he does that he is always and has always uh, been in demand. So those records that I mentioned, many of them don't have his name on the cover, but he is on the album. He is in the music. And uh, I wanted to honor him tonight and play this as a terrific song. Summer Night was uh, recorded in 1964. Believe it or not, it was recorded for the Seven Steps to Heaven album, and it didn't make it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how it didn't make it, but here it is. Uh, added to uh, an album called Quiet Nights with Miles Davis. We'll play out Summer Night with Miles Davis and the birthday man Ron Carter. Have a good night.